All right, we are continuing a series in the book of Jonah that we are calling Compassionate God. So being a father has changed me in so many incredible ways. As a father, there is so much love that I have for my children that, and you might know me, I'm not much of a crier, but I cried, like ugly cry at each one of their births, like zero to ugly cry, like instantly Okay, I love those girls. But with that amount of love, there is also this great potential for frustration, anger, disappointment, and so many other emotions that are like that. And you, uh, you people who are parents in here, you understand what that is like. But one of the things that gets me most frustrated as a dad is blatant disobedience. When I was very, very clear to my daughters about something that they were not supposed to do, and they look at me in the face, and they do it anyway. They are testing me. And so one of the great joys, however, is being a parent and teaching my daughters about the love that Jesus has for them, how he died on the cross for that kind of disobedience, and how he wants to change their simple hearts, make them new people so that they can then better seek to obey the Lord, that God opened up an opportunity through the death of his son on the cross, no matter how much we have sinned so that we can be reconciled to God. And so it's a joy to then reconcile with my daughters in this kind of way after they have rebelled against me. And to be honest, sometimes these are some of the sweetest moments of connection that I get to have with my daughters because they have, we have gone through this time where they have rebelled and we've reconciled, we hug, we kiss, we play, we laugh, we read a book. And I remind them during those times that there is absolutely nothing that could ever stop me from loving them. So it is at the deepest part of my own heart to reconcile with my daughters because I do not want to have that relationship be broken. But instead, I want them to continually come to me to know to restore this relationship so they can experience their daddy's love throughout their life. And so this morning, we're talking about how God's compassion seeks to redeem us back to a right relationship with him. So if I want to reconcile with my daughters this much, think just how much more so God wants to reconcile with us, the one who created us and loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, his compassion is too great to allow sinners like you and I to stay stuck in our sin, but would rather extend mercy, grace, love, and compassion in order to reconcile us back to him even when we have willfully disobeyed him. Just like Jonah has in this book. You see, it's at the very heart of God that he wants to reconcile with us and does not delight in the death of anyone, of anyone, even if they are the worst of the worst, but would rather see them repent and live. So the question becomes, how then does someone be restored back to that right relationship with God? Well, here's our main point this morning. It is by the power of God and for God's mission that he rescues us from our sin. So turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. We're going to go through chapter 2 today uh, through verse 10. And we are also going to look this morning at how God rescues us from our sin and for what purpose as we look at how Jonah repents from his own rebellion. So remember, it is my personal opinion that this book of Jonah is a historical satire, that these events actually happened in history, but the author utilizes satirical tools in order to make the point that God's mercy, grace, compassion, and love are for even the worst of the worst in our world. 
And so to catch you up on the story, here's what's happened in case you've missed anything. God called a prophet named Jonah to go preach against the wicked and cruel people of Nineveh. But instead of doing that, Jonah boards a boat and he goes as far away, trying to go as far away as he can possibly imagine. But instead, God throws, hurls a storm at him on the Mediterranean Sea to get him to try and come back. But instead, Jonah is stubborn and he continues to disobey. He falls asleep below deck, totally content in his disobedience, while the sailors above deck are fighting to keep them all alive, trying to survive and trying to figure out whose fault this is. Meanwhile, Jonah, instead of just repenting to God to stop the storm, chooses simply just to get thrown into the sea, effectively just saying, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. And so all of this could have simply been avoided if Jonah had just owned up to his sin of rebellion against God's call to preach against the city of Nineveh and give them a chance to repent. So let's begin by looking at verse 17 in chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's plan to die rather than go to Nineveh is once again foiled by God. So it says God provided this huge fish, and that word means to appoint, like to a job or a position. So God appointed this fish for a specific purpose. This signifies God's sovereign control over all of the events that are happening in this story. And he is in absolute control of every single thing that is happening to Jonah. The fish is in the exact right place at the exact right time to rescue Jonah. And so this is where many people actually have a hang-up with this book, because how could a fish, or even a whale for that matter, swallow Jonah and keep him alive for three days? First of all, keep in mind, the word here for fish, it says huge fish, so it gives us this concept of something very, very big, which is why many people think it's a whale, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a whale. It could have just been a really, really large fish. But let me tell you something that is and is not important in this story. What is not important in this story is what kind of fish it is or how this fish might have carried Jonah for these three days. Because the author does not go into those details because it's not important to the point he's trying to make. What is important is that it is God who is in control of these events and he's working them out. So if you can get to the logical place of believing there is a God who can create everything we see in our world simply by breathing it out or, or also create life in the Virgin Mary for Jesus to be born, then I think it's pretty easy for us to get to a point to go, okay, I think he could make a fish hold a dude for three days and keep him alive. That's something we need to keep in mind. This event can be an absolute miracle and still be something that actually happened in history. There does not need to be a perfect scientific explanation for everything we believe in Scripture because we have the God of the universe who created everything. Verse 1 of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So finally, finally, Jonah prays. He stops cutting God off and finally wants to say something to him. After throwing this all-time hissy fit, being rebellious against God, he resumes this connection with the Lord. And notice how it says, the Lord, his God. It's making it very personal at this moment. Jonah knows he is in trouble and he needs God. There is no other way he's going to be rescued. And so it might seem like it's going to be too late at this point, but Here's something we need to understand, a little principle. It's always better to cultivate something with the Lord, your relationship with him, 
even if you feel like it might, might be something that is too late. But more importantly is that this was why, this was the point of why God was doing all of these things for Jonah to try and lovingly draw him back to himself, bring Jonah back into a place of obedience so that he will go and do what he has called him to do. Instead, Jonah had made that choice to rebel. So God is using these events to draw Jonah back, and at this point it seems like it might have worked. Verse 2, he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. So the prayer that we're going to see is in the form of Hebrew poetry, and it borrows a lot from the book of the Psalms, which Jonah would have been familiar with. And so it starts to seem like, as you're going to see throughout this, that there's a change that is really happening in Jonah's heart and life. But I still think we should take a wait-and-see approach with Jonah, because we want to see if his actions match up with his words, and that's a slight spoiler, spoiler alert for next week. But Hebrew poetry uses what is called parallelisms, where you have like two lines, and in the first line it gives us the main concept, and then the second line parallels in it in order to further explain it and emphasize the point with some related phrases. And so Jonah now begins this poetic prayer. He mentions he's in distress and that the Lord was the one who answered him. But what's interesting here is, I talked about this last week, that Jonah, his purpose of going into the water, being tossed in, was to further avoid God's call. So didn't he want to die when he went into the water? Well, it seems like once he began actually sinking, he had a moment where he thought, I've made a huge mistake. And now he's going, I need God. I'm, I'm not ready to, I don't want to do this. And so now he's calling to God for help. And so even though Jonah had been rebellious, the Lord still answered him. You got to understand this. This is the extent of God's grace towards people who genuinely cry out to him. And sometimes God's purposes are even greater than our rebellion that he's going to rescue us because he has something in store for us. He wants us to go and do. God's going to answer our cries for rescue when we genuinely mean it. And in this instance, Jonah's rescue is physical, but for most of us, it's going to be a spiritual thing that we were once dead in our sin, and now Jesus is going to rescue us out of that sin. And so if you feel like that you need the Lord's rescue in your life, you can cry out to him no matter how late you might feel on it. God is listening. But the second part of the verse, the parallel, emphasizes this point even more. And interestingly, some scholars actually theorize that Jonah might have died at this moment, and God was the one who resurrected him and rescued him with the fish because he cries out from what it says, the realms of the dead. This phrase, from deep in the realms of the dead, is, literally means in the Hebrew, from the belly of Sheol. Sheol is this place that in the Hebrew thought is the place of the dead, where dead people would go. And so what's in, what Jonah's implying here is that he was in a completely hopeless situation. He could not rescue himself. He needed divine help. And Jonah had waited and waited to pray to the Lord, to cultivate this relationship until the very last possible minute, right before he died, and then the Lord answered. And so at this moment, near death, Jonah is now fearing that the Lord was going to leave him in this belly of Sheol forever. But instead, the Lord listened and rescued him. Verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. 
And so it's interesting that the author does not use the same word that he has used so far when he says to hurl the storm at Jonah or the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. He uses a different word, shalak, which means to throw, fling, or cast out. And so what Jonah is doing here is he's recognizing this is all of these things that are happening are from the sovereign control of God. God exercising his control over what he created. Yes, the sailors were the ones who actually physically threw him into the sea, but by God's actions of hurling the storm at them, they, le- it was, they, left, they were left with no choice, so they had to throw Jonah in. So God effectively, by extension, threw Jonah into the sea. And he threw him into the middle of this storm with the waves breaking and coming over him. It's supposed to use this very dramatic language to give us the concept of how serious this was. But notice again, God is the one who's working all of this out in the story. But notice that this idea doesn't bother Jonah whatsoever, and it shouldn't bother us as well. You see, we have a very sensitive culture, and I think there are some really important and good things about having a more sensitive culture about care and compassion towards other people. But a lot of times people have a really difficult time when God shows anger in this kind of way and he acts in this way because he comes across as vengeful and angry and kind of mean. But you've got to understand the higher kind of love that could be out there, higher amount of love, the greater potential there is for wrath. Like, let me give you an example. Like, if you were to try and hurt and mess with my wife and daughters, I promise you, you're going to experience a little bit of my wrath. Like, you're going to see a side of me you never thought was possible. Okay? So think of it in that way. If I'm that way with my own family, how much more so God with some of his things he wants to accomplish? But keep this in mind. God's wrath is never separated from his love. So when God acts in wrath, he is also acting in love. And because he is the one who is perfect and holy and just and right. He is the only one that has the proper and perfect wisdom to know when to act in these ways and for what purpose and what he's trying to do. And as you can see with Jonah, he's trying to bring him back. Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah at this point is thinking he's completely rejected by God. And based on his actions, this actually seems pretty deserved. But it also seems strange in a little bit that to think that God had rejected Jonah because it is, it's Jonah who rejected God. He's the one who ran away. So this is kind of his own fault that this happened. But the word yet here when he says, yet I will look again, is much more forceful in the Hebrew than how it's translated in the English. It's more like a, yes, this was true, but something else. It's a forceful contrast where Jonah was banished from God because of his sin. But instead, Jonah knows the heart of God and he can turn towards God and God will restore him and able to be in fellowship with him again. Looking toward the temple in that phrase would be Jonah being restored to fellowship with the people of Israel. Being able to go back to the temple to worship God. And so it's restoring his relationship with God even though Jonah had sinned so greatly previously. And so we need to keep this in mind. Jonah's future is not defined by his great sin, but is defined by how the Lord will rescue him. So the same goes for us as followers of Jesus. We are no longer defined by our past. So don't let your past continue to define you. Because if you do that, you're going to let the enemy continue to have a hold over your life and over your heart. He will use that over and over again. 
to keep you down. But instead, let your life be defined by the fact that Jesus loved you, gave himself up for you, and rescued you out of your sin. That's what defines you now. And that you've been given a new hope, a new life. You are not who you used to be. Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. So this part of the poem tells us about the moment that Jonah felt hopelessly trapped and he's engulfed in these ways. And Jonah is likely describing the moment where he is on the brink of drowning and he is no longer able to tread water to keep himself above the surface and he's sinking. And so his death by drowning at this point seems like it's inevitable. But the verbs that he uses here should invoke some terror in us as well. Waters, they're engulfing, they're surrounding. Seaweed wrapped around his head is almost as if it's like choking him to death. These images should absolutely terrify us. And it's giving the concept of just how desperate his situation truly was at this moment. And the fear that he was likely feeling, thinking, I'm about to die. And I'm not ready for this. Verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. So now this is giving us, letting us know how far he is sinking all the way down to the seabeds, which is what he means by the roots of the mountains. He's sinking down. And he gives that phrase, the earth beneath barred me in forever. It's a poetic way of saying that there was no escape from this death. It's almost like he's being locked in a prison cell of death. The bars are closed. The locks are being shut. And the key is being thrown away. And he can absolutely never escape. However, instead of letting Jonah die, once Jonah cried out to the Lord with a genuine heart, God rescued him. The doors have been opened on his prison cell of death. And now he is set free to live again. And we need to remember this. This is is the gospel that we believe in Jesus. It's not just a, I get to go to heaven someday when I die, but it's that I once was dead in my sins. I was stuck. I could not be rescued. And Jesus rescued me and made me alive and set me free to live a whole new life. It is the beautiful thing. Jonah was at the brink of death and now God has brought him back to life. And so the Lord decided to intervene only when Jonah had had this genuine moment of repentance, and it was at the last and most impossible moment. It could have only been God to rescue him. So the Lord brings a great reversal in Jonah's life in a place that is only known for death for humans. At the depths of the sea, God brought life for Jonah. And notice Jonah gets personal again. He says, Lord, my God. He's opened up that communication again. And this surprising resurrection he's gone through has brought Jonah to this joy, joyous place before the Lord. Jonah recognizes this only could have been God that rescued him. And that he's experiencing a level of grace that he does not deserve. And so the whole of Jonah's story up to this point has been descending further and further into his sin and into his rebellion. And yet it is God who is the one who brings him up. So the moment when he could go no lower, literally to the bottom of the sea, God rescues him. Verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So at this point for Jonah, when he was mere seconds from dying, he finally took a moment to pray to the Lord. And ebbing away kind of gives this idea that he is 
literally being drained of oxygen. Like he can feel that the end is very, very near. And that's one of the most terrifying thoughts in my head about that. Not being able to catch your breath, not being able to breathe. And now, again, he's turning to the Lord. So this prayer of remembrance he mentions here, it's more than just bringing something to mind that you once forgot. But for him, it's a plea for the Lord to help him. It implies that Jonah had faith that God would both be able to rescue him and would be willing to do so. Which, considering Jonah's rebellion, it's amazing that he understood this at this point. You see, what's always been clear about Jonah is that he understands God's compassionate heart toward everybody in the world. He had just been choosing and just said, no, God, I do not want you to show it towards the Ninevites. Wasn't letting God act on it. And so even though Jonah is now at the bottom of the sea, the Lord is still now present with him. God is right by his side and now can hear Jonah's prayer. Which is what he means by the second line of this, of this line of the prayer, rising to the Lord, to his holy temple. It's a statement that, saying that Jonah's prayer made it to the presence of God, despite how the fact that he is at the bottom of the sea. God's, we can, God can hear us anywhere we're praying from. And that could be physical or even spiritual. God can hear us if we genuinely lift our hearts to him. But the fact that God answers this prayer shows the genuineness of Jonah's prayer and that God's plans with Jonah cannot be stopped. They're not finished. Jonah really seems to mean it at this point. But the gravity of Jonah's situation shows us the power of God to rescue us. And this is our first point this morning, that God rescued us when we were powerless to rescue ourselves. I want to keep in front of us just how far Jonah went to rebel against God. And yet God still rescued him. He had basically dared God to strike him down throughout the entirety of this story with his disobedience. And yet God still rescued him when he finally repented of his sin and he came to the Lord. And so how much more so will the Lord do that for each and every one of us, for you and I, when we have continued to rebel in sin or we have rebelled against God's lordship over our lives or he's calling us to do something and we've delayed? God is still extending that compassion. But do you think God was surprised at all with Jonah's rebellion? No. God knew, about, knew that was going to come. Jonah, God knew Jonah's heart, and yet he still had a plan to rescue him. I want you to check this out, a principle from the New Testament in Romans 6, 8. The Apostle Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't want you to miss this. When we were still powerless and unable to save ourselves, God rescued us. Christ died for us in our sin. God's love is shown because Jesus died for us while we were sinners. Not when we had fixed ourselves up just a little bit or made ourselves look a little bit more righteous and religious on the outside or had kind of fixed some addiction to something or a sin habit. But he did it while we were still stuck, hopeless, like Jonah, completely drowning in our sin, hopeless, without ability to save ourselves. I want us to understand this as well. You cannot out the grace of God. 
His grace is completely inexhaustible. And so he's calling every single one of us to come to him today. No matter how deep or stuck we feel in our sin, if you come to him and admit your need for him, surrender your life completely to him, he will rescue you from your sin. But for those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus, this truth is still for you. This isn't some like basic Christianity, Christianity 101 little thing that you need to learn and then there's all kinds of other things you need. You need the gospel, this basic belief that you are powerless to save yourself. You need this every single day because we are still powerless to defeat the daily sins that we still struggle with and God is still willing and able to rescue us and defeat those sins every single day. Let's continue verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. So this phrase, those who cling, it's a participle in the Hebrew that signifies an intense and repeated action of paying regard or clinging to these idols. So the phrase worthless idols in the Hebrew is combining two Hebrew words that mean emptiness and breath. So basically saying empty breath. The word for breath in Hebrew is this word chavel. And it's kind of like a mist that you're trying to, that you can't grasp, you can't catch with your hand. And it's the same word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses when he starts the book by saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Havel, Havel, everything is Havel. And these idols that he's talking about, this Havel, these empty breath, they may look attractive, but they are utter, utterly worthless and meaningless in comparison to God. It's like trying to catch mist in your hand. It will never satisfy. It will never give you what you need, especially at your point of greatest need like Jonah was at. But keep in mind, we cling to these worthless idols because they are enticing, they're inviting, or in many ways, they seem completely normal to our culture and we wouldn't know any other way besides going towards those things. And so Jonah is creating a really powerful word picture here. It's impossible to cling to mist or the actual breath of the air. So it is equally pointless to cling to these worthless idols. In fact, for Jonah, it's downright foolish. So ask yourself this question. What is a worthless idol in your life? It can be anything that takes the place of God in your life, that takes away your time, your talent, your treasure from a focus on building God's kingdom here on this earth. And so none of these things, any of these idols can deliver what they initially promised to us, satisfaction, health, wealth, any of that. They can't bring the satisfaction in our souls. Only Jesus can do that for us. So Jonah is extremely clear about what these idols do. They turn people away from the love of the Lord. That's how serious this is. This is not just something about like, I need to be better at time management or managing my finances a little bit better or I have no other choice or that's just kind of expected or that's how you get ahead in this world. No. The question becomes, what is captivating your heart and attention away from the Lord? So Jonah's statement here is far more than just a proposition, but it's actually a desire from him to see people recognize these idols and turn away from them toward the love of God. See, God's love is something for Jonah that he has now had a profound experience with. God saved him, rescued him when he least deserved it. And the Hebrew word for love in this 
part of the story. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words, mostly because it's really fun to say. It's one of those you got to get really deep into the back of your throat. You got to clear your throat with it. Chesed. I love that word because it means steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness. It's this characteristic of God's covenantal and faithful love to Israel that is always present. It never fails and never abandons them. And so for Jonah, he's wanting to see Israel. At this time, they are turning towards worthless idols. They are stuck in idol worship rather than worshiping the Lord. And so he's wanting for them to turn away. He's seeing now that he has participated in that and that he wants them all to turn away toward the love of God, this God who made them a people. Verse 9, but I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So Jonah is rejoicing with shouts of songs to the Lord, showing how full of worship he is for what God has done for him. And now Jonah's life is, in this story has come full circle. It's resembling very similarly to the sailors who once were stereotyped as being immoral, but now their lives have turned to sacrifice to the Lord and pay vows to him. Just, and so this is something we're seeing now in Jonah's life. He has made a vow to the Lord, and he's going to fulfill it. And this vow is now to say that salvation comes from God alone. And so salvation in the Hebrew is this word Yeshua, which is where we get the name Jesus from, and, it's to, and it means the Lord saves. And so Jonah has now experienced the saving work of the Lord, and he wants to proclaim it elsewhere, that there is nowhere else that you can find salvation. And so for us, we have to remember that. We can't find it in any sort of self-help book that you're going to find at the bookstore. Can't find it in any other religion, only in Jesus. And Jesus alone can you find salvation and true hope. And so Jonah's admitting that his rebellion was foolish and sinful, and now he is reconciled to the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah on to dry land. So with Jonah's response and commitment to proclaim the Lord's salvation, the Lord in his sovereign control of all of the events are, that are happening has the fish spit out Jonah onto dry land. And I think this moment is really funny. It's kind of an undignified moment, and it reminds me of some of my favorite comedy movies I've seen where they have these jump cuts, where you have one scene, it's this really genuine, heartfelt moment for Jonah. He's repenting, and then the next moment, he's getting vomited onto the dry land. It's really unceremonious, and this is the satire genre that I was talking about in the last few weeks, and it's okay to laugh. This is kind of a funny moment. It's very undignified and kind of gross, but after... And after Jonah has this moment, we see that God had rescued Jonah and he had rescued him for a purpose, just like he had talked about in verse 8, to have people turn from their worthless idols back to a love for God. And this is important for us to understand as well, that God rescued us to participate in rescuing others. You see, Jonah's repentance only means something if it leads to him obeying God's command to now go preach against Nineveh's wickedness and gives them a chance to repent. We need to understand this. Repentance is only genuine if it means that your life has actually changed and you are a different person and then you join in on God's mission to rescue the world, however that looks in your current station in life. Repentance, by definition, means a turning back toward God, which results in a changed life. 
And so because the main issue for Jonah was his rebellion about going to Nineveh, now he can show that true rebellion by going to Nineveh, doing what God had called him to do. But this emphasizes our point really well. Jonah was rescued by God so that he could participate in rescuing others. So I want us to understand this. The fact that we were saved by Jesus when we were at our worst is not just for us, but instead should lead us to share the gospel with other people, those people that are around us. If we hold our salvation closely to ourselves and don't share it with others, then we are showing in many ways we don't truly understand the heart of God and we don't understand this faith we believe in. You see, God worked this story out in Jonah's life to get him to the point to recognize that, yes, God is compassionate, but we also need to act upon that truth. And so what prevents you from acting upon the compassion, mercy, and love of God towards people in this world? Is it maybe that you need to learn again to fall in love with Jesus and what he has, and remembering what he has done for you so that that love can impact you to go and love others? Or do you need God to convict you of some sort of sin or a worthless idol you've been focusing on that'll lead you to then refocus on God? Remember this, God rescued us to rescue others. So who are people in your life that maybe you might be the only person that they will have a chance to tell them about Jesus? Is there anyone in your life you've maybe avoided, just like Jonah has avoided the Ninevites? And so for those of you who have joined us this morning, or if you're online, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want to plead with you this morning about something. You might think, I've done such horrible things in my life. There is no possible way that I could ever be forgiven and made right with God again. But I want you to look at the story of Jonah. This is a guy who actually knew better and chose to rebel against God, and yet God still gave him a chance to repent and rescued him when he was mere seconds from dying. I want you to understand this as well. Because Jesus was perfect and sinless, only he was able to pay completely all the debt of every single one of our sins, past, present, and future, so that when we put our faith in Jesus, pledge our allegiance to him and him alone, we can be reconciled to him, made right with him. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus yet, be reconciled to him. Put your faith in in his sacrifice on the cross, being enough to pay the debt of your sin towards God and pledge your allegiance to following him the rest of your life over everything else. But for those of you who have followed Jesus a a longer time, if you feel like Jonah and you have been rebelling against God or there has been something that he has been calling you to for maybe your entire life, but you've kind of ignored it, let me just encourage you with something. It's not too late to get going. God's compassion extends to you as well. God hasn't given up on you. He's calling you to step forward today, to turn away from worthless idols and things that maybe you are more focused on and instead turn turn toward him and his purposes for the world and just say to him, my life is yours. Use me for your mission to rescue others and he will restore and redeem you, but it is up to you to step forward in faith and obedience to do that today, to do what he's asked you to do. So take some time this week to think about how God has worked in your life. Be thankful. Be in a worshipful posture because of what he has done. Or if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, do so today. And if you're here with us this morning, feel free to talk to me after service. Or if you're online, you can email me and we can chat. I would love to talk to you about that. 
But how, let's ask these final questions in closing. How can you extend then redeeming compassion to someone that's in your life who maybe doesn't deserve it? And what are some ways for you to participate in God's mission to rescue the world? And let us remember, it is by the power of God and for God's mission that he rescues us from our sin. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have rescued us from our sin. God, but for a glorious purpose that is beyond ourselves, that is outside ourselves. God, we're so good. We are so good at ignoring what you have us do and what you want us to do. But God, you are so good in giving us a chance over and over again when we least deserve it. So God, I pray that we would no longer ignore you. We would heed your call because you have something great for us. And God, that we would find joy in you and you alone and joy in what you have directed us to do. So God, thank you for this morning and thank you for your great love and compassion. Let us turn to you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.